Hello everyone, welcome back to the True Crime Friday podcast. I'm your host Lauren and as per usual I go through a brand new true crime case every single Friday and we can go through as many different kinds of cases as we wish. Uh, before we start, especially with this one, I have to put a disclaimer out there before we go into absolutely anything. I do not worship any ca- any criminal that we talk about. I'm just doing this for historical and educational reasons to remember the victims of these crimes and also I just have a generic interest in this just like you do. If you're listening to this then you definitely have an interest in this kind of stuff. We try and make this as lighthearted, lighthearted as we can and go into it in as much detail as possible but yep, no widow do not have a weird uncomfortable obsession with this this is all for psycholo- like all for the psychology so for episode 3 of se- of series 1 yep episode 3 we're going to be going into the life the crimes and the af- af- and the aftermath of the infamous BTK Dennis Raider this one is intriguing to say the very least now the thing is with dennis raider is he is cringy as all hell but also just as disgusting as you should expect but he is a for one stupid b just really really cringy and see like he half the shit that he talks about and half the shit that he like his reasoning for a lot of things make zero freaking sense like most of them but with him especially for example before we get into it btk stands for bind torture kill i mean he didn't torture them like he came up with the name himself i always feel like when they come up with the name it's worse like when the media gives it gives them the name it's like oh for fuck's sake why are you giving them a nickname i get it it's unsolved but why are you giving them something that they so desperately want which is the satisfaction and praise well, not praise but media attention but with dennis raider he wanted a all of that but no one was giving him a nickname so he just kind of gave himself one which is just weird but we're going to get into him and everything about him right away. So we're going to start off with his early life. So Dennis Lynn Raider was born on the 9th of March 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas to Dorothea May Raider and William Elvin Raider. He is one of four sons to the couple. His brothers are Paul, Bill and Jeff Raider. He was born in Pittsburgh but he did grow most spent the majority of his life growing up in Wichita. So both of his parents worked incredibly long hours to support the family. Both barely paid any attention to their children at home. They were so focused on work. And Raider later described feeling ignored by his mother. Mostly his mother, not really his father. But his mother, as if like there aren't two parents to pay attention to you. And because of this whole feeling of being ignored he actually resented her for it for pretty much the rest of his life from a very young age dennis harbored sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing trapped and helpless women he also exhibited uh uh, uh, 
Uh, what the frick? Zoodism. I'm saying this so wrong. Basically, it's a pleasure um, take. It's basically pleasure at the whole cruelty to animals, which is fucked up. So, by torturing, killing, and hanging small animals, he would get this weird sexual satisfaction from it. He acted out sexual fantasies uh, for voyeurism, which is a sexual interest in a practice of watching other people engage in intimate behavior. So, kind of basically a peeping Tom or a dogger, I think. He had autoerotic asphyxiation and cross-dressing. I like how, like, with women, when you research stuff like that, they have to add cross-dressing as a weird thing to have as a sexual fantasy. It's not weird. If you cross-dress, that is completely fine. But the thing is, with a lot of these serial killer documentaries, podcasts, and stuff like that, a lot of people are getting their research from, like myself, old news articles and old interviews and stuff like that so you'll get a lot of outdated views he often spied on female neighbors while dressing in women's clothing including women's underwear that he had stolen and he masturbated with ropes or other bindings around his arms and neck so basically he's a bit kinky which is fine if he would have left it this we would have been pretty much good take the cruelty of animals away and we should be good Years later, during during his cooling off periods between murders, he would actually he actually took pictures of himself wearing women's clothes and a female mask while he was bound up, and he actually later admitted that he was pretending to be his victims as part of a sexual fantasy, which is terrifying to think about. However, Raider kept his sexual like fantasies pretty well hidden and he's widely regarded in his community as normal, polite, and well-mannered. So to everyone else, he's the complete opposite of what he actually is. Like, his wife also had no idea. Like, he has, wife and ki- he has a wife and kids, and they had no idea. Uh, Dennis attended Kansas uh, University after high school, but received mediocre grades and dropped out after literally only one year. He then served in the United States Air Force from 1966 to 1970, so a bit of a military background, and if you know anything about serial killers, you'll know that is pretty much a key part of them. After he was discharged, he moved to Park City, where he worked in the meat department of a Leakers IGA supermarket, where his mother was a bookkeeper. Raider then later married Paula Dietz on May on the 22nd of May 1971 and they had two children Kerry and Brian Raider. He attended at Wichita State University and graduated in 1979 with a Bachelor of Science degree majoring in Administration of Justice. So you know what he's not that stupid but he also is quite stupid and you will eventually see why. Raider initially worked as an assembler for the Coleman Company, and which was an outdoor supply company. He worked at the Wichita-based office of ADT Security Services from 1974 to 1988, where he installed security cameras as part of his job. Now, in many cases for homeowners concerned about the BTK killings, he would basically be the person that would go around. So a lot of people would go into this company because they're a security service, because they were worried about the whole BTK murders and they wanted some extra protection. 
obviously completely not knowing that the person that was in, that was installing these security systems was BTK himself. So Radio was a census field operations supervisor for the Wichita area in 1989 before the 1990 federal census. In May 1991, Radio became a dog a dog catcher and compliance officer in Park City. In this position, neighbors recalled him being sometimes overzealous and and extremely strict, as well as taking special pleasure in bullying and harassing single women at any given chance he got. So this is already like red flags and someone should have pulled something up on this weird behavior by now. Like he's gone from normal guy that everyone adores in the community to this really creepy guy that loves to harass and bully various women especially when they're on their own but only one person complained about his behavior and this was a neighbor of his who is unknown uh but this neighbor actually complained that dennis killed her dog for no apparent reason whatsoever he just kind of took the power that he had with this company and used it to whatever way he wanted but this was the only person that ever complained about him and it wasn't for anything else but it was for killing her dog for no reason but from what we know there is literally no recording of any punishment any just anything at all that shows that this was this issue was dealt with so for all we know it was kind of ignored and brushed under the carpet uh, Dennis Schrader was also a member of Christ Lutheran Church and had been elected president of the church council. Oh, God. Now, while all this is going on, he looks like he's living a fairly normal life. He's going to different jobs. But at this point, he had already started his killing spree. So we're going to go into the crimes a bit more now and we're going to go to back to start. We just were in 1990, but we're going to go straight back to 1974. So this was the murders of the Ontario family. So on the 15th of January 1974, four members of the Ontario family were murdered in Wichita, Kansas. The victims were Joseph Ottero, who was, thir- he was 38, Julie Ottero, who was 33, Joseph Ottero Jr., who was only nine years old, and Josephine Ottero, who was only 11. Their bodies were discovered by the family's three older children who had been at school at the time of the killings. After his 2005 arrest, Raider confessed to the killing of the family. He wrote a letter that had been stashed inside an engineering book in the Wichita Public Library in October 1974, which described in detail the killings of the family in January of that year. He, he did that really clearly intending for someone to find it, which is even worse. Not even worse than what he did, but obviously like he wanted to be caught. On the morning of the 15th of January 1974, BTK began his spree. He has with him his hit kit. So he created like a whole kit. So this was all premeditated. This was all planned out. This was a briefcase that was packed with lengths of cord, hoods, plastic bags, tape and wire cutters. He uses the latter to sever the phone lines. He waits by the back door and sometime after 7am it opens to let the dog out. But before the dog can leave the house, Raider goes inside. 
Having done surveillance on the property for some time, he expects to find a mother and daughter and he nearly loses control of the situation when he finds the father and son there as well. But Raider pulls out a gun. First, he binds the wrists and ankles of Joseph Otero, who was 38, the father. Raider does the same to the wife, who he also gags. He strangles the father first, then the mother. He then takes Joseph Jr. to his bedroom, binding his wrists. He covers the boy's head in a hood, and then he sits and watches as the, as the child slowly suffocates. He moves on to the real target of the family, so his intention was only to kill the mother and daughter, and obviously not expecting to see uh, father and son there as well. His only intention was mostly aimed at Josephine, the 11-year-old girl. He takes her down to the basement and hangs her from a pipe. He hasn't sexually assaulted any of his victims, but once Josephine is actually dead, he masturbates and, and finishes. Afterwards, he methodically goes through each of the each room he's killed in and cleans away any evidence. Before he leaves, he steals his first memento, which is the father's watch, which he would eventually add to his collection that he called the mother load. This is why he's also cringy. He describes stuff as the hit kit and the mother load. That afternoon, the eldest child, Charlie, comes home from school and finds his family dead, which must be traumatic for absolutely everyone, never mind a child. The police investigate and find that right up to the point of their death, none of the family uh, resisted as there was no defence marks. It's as if the killer had persuaded them that murder wasn't his intention, so there is a possibility that BCK persuaded them that he was just there to rob the place, so they would have come like listen to him just in order to survive this and obviously that is not what ended up happening uh joseph what ontario was born on so we're going to go into the family a bit more sorry i should have explained that we're going to go into the family a bit more so joseph ontario the father was born on the 18th of march 1935 he was born in puerto rico he served in the air force for more than 20 years and retired as a master sergeant and was working as a mechanic and a flight instructor uh, he was very fun. He was very outgoing. He was a talented pogo, uh, pongo player, bongo, pongo, bongo player with a fascination for cars. He was a gourmet chef who collected recipes when traveling to exotic areas during his military career. So he built up skills along the way. He was a strict, but he was very proud. He was a very proud father with high with high ideas for his children. He supported them for absolutely everything. Uh, and when it came to the schoolwork, he was very much keen on making sure that they did well, everything. I just he absolutely adored his kids. His wife, Julia, was born on the 31st of January in 1940 um, in Puerto Rico. She was a petite, kind-spirited Air Force wife. She didn't drink and she didn't have a temper, apparently. She was very calm and sweet to everyone who knew her. She was passionate about culture and she also encouraged her children to learn to speak Spanish as well as English. Her life was devoted to her family. Her oldest child, Charlie, described her as an angel. She also had a brown belt in judo, which she took lessons with her children on a daily basis. Now, there isn't much on the children, obviously, because they were so, so young. But Joseph Jr. was born on the 1st of October 1964 in Puerto Rico. He was only nine years old when he died, but was a happy child and loved to go to judo with his mother. And Josephine was born on the 18th of February 1962, also in Puerto Rico.
very similar information to her brother Joseph to be honest now between the spring of 1973 and winter 1977 Dennis Rader killed three more women the next victim was Catherine Bright Catherine Bright was one of five children. She loved singing in the church with her sister and her friends. After she graduated from high school in 1971, she worked for Coleman at the, and at the age of 21, Catherine was a smart, popular and funny college student by all accounts. On the 4th of April 1974, Dennis Schrader burst through her screen door wearing a stocking cap carrying a magnum and a .22 but was stunned to find her five foot six, uh, 115 pound brother 19-year-old Kevin was with her. Brady knew something needed to be done about Kevin before he could fulfill his sexual fantasies with Catherine. He could not recall if he brought his own tools, but he told them he needed a car to get away because he want, he was wanted in California. First, he made Kevin tie up Catherine, and then he then tied up Kevin by his feet to the bedpost before he moved Catherine to another bedroom to tie her down. When Kevin was put... When Kevin... When, yeah, sorry... Kevin put up a pretty strong fight, but Raider shot him in the head with his .22 and figured he was pretty much out for it. After he believed that Kevin was... Sorry. Words. Sorry, that was Kath... Oh my god, I'm... Wait. So he thought he thought he'd shot... Oh my god, I am terrible at this. Sorry. I thought, right. So he shot Catherine in the head with his point twenty-two, not Kevin. So he believed that Catherine was dead, but then when he heard, but then he heard noises from Kevin on the other, in the other bedroom. While attempting to strangle Kevin, Rado was worried Kevin would grab his magnum from the shoulder hol- hol- holster. Raider stuck his finger in the weapon to jam it. He either bit or hit Kevin and then shot him again and believed Kevin was completely down. He returned to finish off Catherine, who was still fighting for her life. Unable to strangle her to death, he stabbed her with a knife in the, in the lower back and under her ribs in the abdomen and left her for dead. Raider checked back in on Kevin, expecting to find him dead, but he was running down the street. He quickly cleaned up the mess and attempted to steal their pickup truck, but even though he had keys, he couldn't get it started. He ran four to five blocks to Wichita State University campus where his car was parked. Kevin did survive being shot twice. Bleeding, Catherine ca- crawled to the living room phone. She told the police she didn't know who did this before she died from numerous stab wounds. Over 30 years later, when Raider was arrested, the Boy Scout knife used to kill Catherine was still in his kitchen pantry. He intentionally changed his MO so the police wouldn't link the Bright murder with the Ontario murders. In October, Raider writes his first BTK letter for the Wichita Eagle Beacon newspaper. He places it in a book in a library and rings a reporter with its name and location. The letter seeks to both claim responsibility and acknowledge the evil of the murders whilst in the same time seeking the blame uh, seeking the blame on the monster of the uh, that's that lives in the murderer's mind. The letter ends and quote Yours truly guilty and is signed off. The code word for me will be bind them, torture, kill them. BTK. 
Now, this communication would be the first of many or many to come. It's needed for the public recognition and respect from his pursuers, the police that will eventually lead to arrest, trial, and imprisonment. By his third kill, Raider had developed a signature, which was attacking during the day, which is very different, cutting phone lines and then executing his murders MO according to his algorithm kind of thing. Basically, not algorithm. So he would basically, what he'd do, he'd attack, he'd attack during the day, cut the telephone lines, and then he would basically confess to the murders by getting in touch with the police on various in various different methods. On the 17th of March 1977, he tries to put into operation Project Green, but his intended target at this point is away. Ready to kill, but frustrated, he wanders into the streets and comes across a child returning home. He first shows a photo of his own wife to the child, asking if he knew who she was, as if he was a private detective seeking information. The boy shakes his head, saying he doesn't know who she is, and continues to walk home. Raider watches where he goes and follows him. He knocks on the boy's door and persuades the boy to allow him in the house, and he enters the home of Shirley Vane. Shirley Vane was a mother of three. She was 26 years old. She always seemed very happy and loved to sing in the church choir. She was a good mother to all three of her children, Bud, Stephen and Stephanie. On the 17th of March 1977, she was homesick from work when her son returned home with Raider behind him. When the boy let Raider into the home, he turned off the television. She turned off the television, closed the blinds and pulled a three and he pulled a 357 Magnum gun out from under his jacket. Shirley came out of her bedroom in her robe, begging him not to harm any of the children. He said, I'm not going to, as he started to tie up the oldest child, who was only eight. He said, unquote, I told Mrs. Vane that I had a problem with sexual fantasies that was going to tie her up and that I might have to tie the kids up and if she would cooperate with us. We went back. She was extremely nervous. Now, this is a quote from him later on when he confesses. Raider took her back to the back porch He needed Shirley to help him move the three crying children from the bedroom to the bathroom to tie them up. They attempted to make the children comfortable with blankets and toys. He wedged the door to the bathroom shut and tied the other door closed. Shirley pleaded with them to stay in the bathroom and all three of them did. Shirley vomited as Raider tied her down. He brought her a glass of water and comforted her before he continued tying her legs to the bedpost. Working his way up, he looped the rope around her neck, placed a plastic bag over her head and strangled her with the rope. Now at this point, the children are pretty much screaming. They're banging on the door as their mother is being murdered, but they can actually see everything because there's a slight opening in the door and they can witness the entire thing. Now, Dennis Raider planned on killing the children too, similar to the Ontario murders. When the little boy threatened to go get help, he said, I'll shoot you, blow your head off. Afterwards, he placed Shirley on her bed, taped her feet and ankles and ties her up with her arms crossed under the small of her back. In the bondage world, that's really high stuff, he would later say. A ringing, a ringing telephone interrupted Raider's sexual fantasies about killing the children, which actually saves their lives. Instead, he put a plastic bag over Shirley's head and ties it with a pink nightgown. He quickly gathered his briefcase, tape, ropes, and anything he brought with him. He stole her underwear on his way out, and he would wear them later on himself, which is so fucking creepy. 
The children unsuccessfully attempted to escape by breaking the window. By the time they got out of the door, Rada was already gone and their mother was dead. Her young son tried to untie her hands, but wasn't really successful. Young Stephen gave the police an accurate description of the attacker, but they actually weren't confident that a child was a reliable witness. So every piece of information that the kids gave, they blatantly ignored. But Stephen would help with getting Raider's sentence later on. When he would when he would hear and see Raider at his first court appearance, he knew instantly that he was BTK. On the eighth of December, nineteen seventy-seven, Raider breaks form by by one breaking a window to enter, and two by attacking during the night. This time, his target is twenty-five-year-old Nancy Fox. By December 1977, Raider became obsessed with stalking 25-year-old Nancy Fox. On the 8th of December, he cut the phone lines and then broke into her modest duplex from the back door. He waited in her home for her to get back from her job at a jewellery store and since she lived alone, he had no trouble surprising her in the kitchen at gunpoint. He told her that he had a sexual issue and that in order to get rid of that issue, he had to tie her up and rape her. After being allowed to partly disrobe herself in the bathroom, he ordered her to the bedroom. He tied her up and undressed her and undressed her. He then started to strangle her and as he strangled her, he confessed to her who he really was and what he'd done in the past. Now, this is probably already told her so, so quick that she's not getting out of this while this is going on. Like, she's not going to survive this. Which it must have been the most terrifying thing to just know straight away. Her body was later found with semen on a nightgown that was actually laid next to her. The following day, on his way to work for the ADT alarm company, he called the local police department and said, and quote, Yes, you'll find a home you'll find a homicide at eight four three Sound Pershing, Nancy Fox that is correct and then left the receiver dangling the police rushed to the house and found nancy's body strangled to death the police tried to replay the recording of his voice many times but never really found a match to it in early 1978 raider sent a, sent a sarcastic poem called shirley locks to the wichita eagle newspaper after the poem was a serious letter btk was again taking responsibility for the past seven homicides it was, it was written the same way as the letter that was found in 1974, including Factor X, which was apparently the reason for him to commit these horrible crimes. The next letter that was found was mocking the murder of Nancy Fox, entitled Oh Death to Nancy, which was mimicking the song Oh Death. With writing the letters, he echoes the Zodiac Killer's letters to the media over his next communications and specifically compares himself to others such as Jack the Ripper and the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. He continues to both express remorse and distance himself from his crimes. On the 28th of April 1979, he breaks and enters into the home of his next victim. He sits and waits, and as he, and as he waits, he just... Basically, he just starts to get really, really bored because the woman does not turn up, which is amazing for her. Raider leaves and later writes a letter for the, for the intended victim to show how close they came to meeting. Years pass, actually, before he kills again. Now, during his break, I'd say, 
He goes on a pretty hefty break. So this is in 1979 and he wouldn't do anything again until 1985. So it's a good six years. Now during this time he has a daughter, he was involved in his church and once his son became old enough he became a boy scout leader. He now had two kids, Brian and Kerry. So he doesn't kill again until the 27th of April 1985. He puts into action his most most insane plan yet which was project cookie which was the killing of a neighbor he actually knows to say hello to someone who has seen him on a daily basis for years so i'm thinking he did this as like a whole scare factor thing like they have been worried about these murders over the past god knows how long and he's like i can terrify them because i'm that person the victim is marianne hedge Marianne Hedge was a 53-year-old widow and described as a kind and gentle woman. Hedge and Raider lived on the same block for over 30 years in Park City. On the 27th of April 1985, Raider was in the middle of a Boy Scout meeting when he stated that he had a headache and needed to leave to get medicine. He left and walked to his car, which was, a, which was, a near, which was left in a nearby bowling alley. He went inside, bought a beer... He swished the beer with his mouth and then spat it out, which is fucking weird, it's not wine. Which was purposely to spill some on his clothing, giving onlookers the illusion that he had been drinking already. He called a cab pretending to be drunk and told the driver to take him to Park City. Once he got to Marianne's home, he saw her car and assumed she was home. He cut the phone lines like usual and gently opened the back door to sneak in. He realised no one was home and waited in her bedroom until he saw a car pull up into the driveway. Marianne Hedge and another man walked into their house and Raider came out of hiding, turned on the bathroom light and jumped on top of Marianne, choking her to death. Once she had died, he dragged her body outside into the trunk of her car. He drove to the church that he went to regularly and because he was a trusted member, he actually had the keys to the building put black plastic over the windows so no one could look inside he then dragged her body to the basement of the church he photographed the body in multiple different poses before putting her back in the trunk of the car and driving off again he dumped her body in a ditch along a dirty road not too far from their home in park city on the 16th of september 1968 raider does his uh, dons his hit clothes. He wears the uniform of a telephone repairman, carries a company manual and fake identification, all of which helps persuade Vicky Weggle to let him in. I really hope I'm saying her name right. By September of 1986, Vicky was, a, was 28 years old at the time and a mother of two. She had caught Dennis Raider's eye, unfortunately. He would walk by her house during the day and listen to her play the piano. He thought his murder out carefully, calling it his PJ project. Kill this man, get rid of him. By 10 a.m. on on the 16th of September, Raider dressed up as a telephone repairman and knocked on her door. She let she let him into her home, thinking that he was going to fix the phone line. He cut the line and told her that he was going to tie her up. At gunpoint, he forced her into the bedroom and tried to tie her up, but she gave him a fight, causing cuts and scratches on Raider. He got a rope and stopped her fighting by choking her to death. After that, he took photos of the body in different positions, then left, stealing her, pretty much just stealing her car. 
After that, Bill Wiggle, the husband, said that he saw his own car go in the opposite direction of the house but could not identify the driver. When he arrived home, he saw his two-year-old son by himself in the living room. He searched the house for his wife and soon found her on the floor behind the bed in their bedroom. Vicky was rushed to the hospital but was pronounced dead after a few hours. As this was happening, Radar was uh, disposing of the evidence and parked the Wergel's car just a few blocks away from the home. He went to his own home, changed his clothes and once again got away with murder. The husband Bill not only lost his wife and the mother of his, mother of his children, but he becomes and remained for years the, the chief, so the main suspect for her murder. The next victim is Dolores D. Davis, who was 63. In 1991, Radar found old women to be more vulnerable from past experiences with other women. Radar found an older woman who was 62 and lived on her own, Dolores Davis. Uh, Dolores lived a mile and a half away from Radar when he noticed her at her home. He had a very well thought out plan to get what would be his last victim. He was going camping with the Boy Scouts over the weekend, and on, which is just a little thing to add in there, it does make sense. On the 19th of January 1991, he came up, with, came up with an excuse to slip away from one of the scout meetings. He drove his car to his parents' house to change out of his scout uniform and put on his, his hit clothes. He then drove to the Baptist Church in Park City to park his car and finish his plan out on foot. Once he got to the Davis's house, he, he waited outside until he saw that she was fast asleep. He broke the glass door at the back of the house with a cement block that he found. Dolores came out of her bedroom and found Raider stood there. He used the same line that he had almost every single time, saying that he needed money, a car, food, and that he was going to tie her up, and that was that. He tied her up in the bedroom and strangled her to death. Raider took the body outside and put her in the trunk of her own car. He drove to a lake near Park City and hid the body and evidence under some trees. He then drove the car back to Davis's house, wiped it down for fingerprints, and then left to go back to the church. He went back to where he hid the body, put it in his trunk, and dumped the body under a bridge in Sedgwick County. Raider then went somewhere to check back in, in to change back into his scout uniform and return back to the camp. The following evening, he went back to where he left the body and took photos of it, which is even more sinister, and he's just getting worse and worse at this point. Now, from 1991 to 2004, BTK stayed in hiding. No one heard from him for over 10 years, but on the 30th anniversary of the Ontario murders, the Wichita Eagle newspaper ran an article about the crime and BTK. A book by Robert Beetle came out about the nightmare that haunted Wichita, Kansas, aka BTK. This book and art an article angered Dennis Rader because he thought they were trying to tell his own story. Well, no shit, because no one knows who you are at this point. On the 17th of March 2004, Rader mailed a letter to the Wichita Eagle from an undercover name, which was Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK. The envelope had three photocopy pictures of the ones he took of, Vic of Vicky and her driver's license and then signed it with the same signature that had been used in the previous letters. The letter was sent to the FBI and the investigation on BTK started again hitting the media and the internet. Raider sent an another letter on the 5th of May 2004 to KAKE-TV and it was a word puzzle that contained a deeper meaning with letters and numbers. 
Next, on the 9th of June 2004, he left a package taped to, to a sign in the middle of the middle of the city, which he which had a gruesome description of the Ontario murders and a sketch of a dead body hanging by a rope. He titled the sketch, The Sexual Thrill is My Bill. I hate this guy. On the 17th of June 2004, there was another package labelled BTK that was found at the Wichita Public Library. In this letter, Raider explained that time was running out for him and he wanted to wait for the right time for his next hit. The fifth item dropped by Raider was on the 22nd of October 2004 when it was found by a UPS driver. There was a collage of children with bindings drawn across their bodies and faces inside the envelope. It also contained an autobiography that listed false details about BTK. For example, the year he was born and the area that he lived in to mislead the police officers. Just eight days after Raider became the president of the church council at the, at the Christ Lutheran Church, there was a special K box with markings BTK and bomb in the back of a pickup truck. Inside the box was information on his projects that he had watched or stalked along with even more misleading information. Also inside the box was a question asking if there was a floppy disk made. Now this, the floppy disk. This is where the stupid comes into this. Because this is just straight up fucking stupid. So, inside this box was a question. Now the question was to ask if a floppy disk was made and given to the police with information on it, probably false and misleading information, would the police be able to trace it back to him through a computer? And would it trace it back to the computer that he used to make said floppy disk? Now, naturally, yes you can. However, obviously the police reply back with, no, yeah, I can't do that, 100% we can't do that. Which was obviously a massive lie. Now, Later, the plea, so the next clue was found was on another cereal box discovered on the 25th of January 2005 after he sent directions to KAKE TV on where to find the box. Inside the box was a doll with rope around its neck and tied to a pipe, simulating the murder of Josephine Ontario. The 10th drop was a postcard that arrived on the 3rd of February 2005 that was sent to KAKE. That was sent to Cake saying that he was going to send a floppy disk. So he clearly felt what the police were saying. So when, the so when the 11th was found 13 days later outside the studio, the police analysed the floppy disk, which was drawn back to the Chrysotheran church under the name Dennis. Idiot. Now, all they had to do was very, very simple. They looked up the church, found the name of the president, which was a Dennis Raider, also realised that, that he is the only Dennis in that, that works at that church. Now, they drove past his home one day in an undercover vehicle and saw a familiar car from, from past security cameras. It was Raider's black Jeep. And the police asked his daughter, Kerry, for a DNA sample, saying it was for a medical record. But in reality, the police were using it to match to, to match it to the semen found in past crime scenes left by BTK. The Wichita Police Department found a match and finally solved the case after 30 years. 
On the 25th of February 2005, the WPD surrounded Raider's car after he ate lunch at work and led him to a waiting police car where he was handcuffed and arrested. That same day that, uh, that Raider was arrested, he was taken to an interrogation room where at first he did not talk but soon very much opened up and gave every little detail possible. Now... Which is very common, like as soon as they get caught, they just blurt everything out. By the end, he had given a 30-hour confession. In his confession, he talked highly about his crimes and it was evident that he was proud of what he had done and that he liked the publicity that he had been given. The next day, Raider took his first mugshot and realised that the police were not on his side at all, which apparently he was quite shocked about. On the 1st of March, the public was finally able to see a live video of BTK receiving the charges against him before he was found guilty. The court had a lot of evidence against Raider after they searched his home. They found his mother load, which contained the original BTK letters, victims' driver's licenses, photos that were taken, cutouts from newspaper articles and artwork that was found in a cabinet in his home office. Raider's family and friends were devastated when they had heard that Dennis was BTK. Many of who knew him said they wouldn't have thought or suspected him to be capable of committing those actions that he was being accused of. His wife Paula did an, emer- did an emergency divorce not long after his arrest so she was straight up not having this shit. Also he actually did plan out how he would eventually tell his family like he planned everything so if he was going to die before anyone finding out who BTK really was he had pre-recorded a videotape of him confessing to being BTK and he was going to have it be played at his own funeral in front of his family and friends. Those of which most likely including his his daughter and his son which is so fucked up but so typical of him. Dennis Rader's court case started on the 27th of July 2005 for all 10 victims, Raider confessed with much detail and no remorse, pleading guilty, which is a shocker because normally some of them just don't plead guilty. Normally some of them are very much like, no, I'm innocent for a bit until they eventually confess. Family members from each victim were able to speak, telling Raider the hatred they have for him and how they will never be able to see their loved ones ever again. After that, Raider was able to give a statement where he talked for 20 to 30 minutes on what was supposed to be an apology, but he mainly just talked about himself, which we shouldn't be shocked by. It was very obvious to the court and the millions of viewers that he was not truly sorry for his actions and that he liked the attention he was getting. On the 18th of August 2005, Judge Waller sentenced Dennis Raider to life in prison. Raider would not be eligible for parole until 2180. He was also not allowed access to materials that would fulfil his fantasies. On the 19th of August 2005, Raider was taken to his new home, the El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas. And that is where the crimes of BTK come to a thankful freaking end. I hope you also found him just as cringy and annoying as I did. Because uh, he's just... Oh, he's a piece of shit. He is still alive, unfortunately, so... And I bet you he doesn't shut the fuck up about himself in there either. So yeah, that is the case for this week. That was episode 3, BTK Dennis Raider. Uh, yeah. 
At this point, we are still in December. I'm going to assume it's episode three, so we should be. We are in December. And that means on Twitch, where we would where we will be talking about True Crime Friday's life, we'll be going through the most notorious. Which oh, very nice little topic, isn't it? So this week's because we'll be on episode three. So that after episode two, you had Richard Ramirez, which means this week. Oh Jesus, you got a lovely one. Which means later on today, if you're watching this, if you are listening to this straight away on Friday as a release on this one on Twitch, it will be all about Harold Shipman, aka Dr. Death. Next week after that, you'll have Andre Chikatilo, which is a lovely one to be talking about, right? Gotta love it. But yeah, that's pretty much it for now. Thank you all for listening. I will not tell you what episode 4 is because I'm not 110% sure yet. But I'll give you all updates on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok possibly, and the Discord. And obviously on Twitch, I'll give you all updates during the streams. But I hope to see you all very, very soon. I hope you enjoyed this one. And thank you for listening. And I will be with you again next week on True Crime Friday. Bye!